Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today I'm going to go over some best practices for treating patients perioperatively who have obstructive sleep apnea. Now, regular listeners will know I already did an episode on pediatric OSA with Dr. Deb Schwengel. Today, I'm going to talk about adults with OSA. There are some uh, good articles you can check out. I'll list them in the show notes uh, that do a good job of reviewing the evidence. Before I start, I do want to give the shout-outs I normally give at the end right here up front for once just in case people don't listen all the way through the end, and there really are some shout-outs that are important to give. So Brian Park does a great job of doing some outlines for some of the episodes. If you see outline by Brian Park listed in the show notes, check those out. It's a nice way, especially if you're using these to study, and he does a really great job with those. I also want to give a big thank you to anyone who has become a patron of the show. It really helps defray the costs of making the show. And if you're interested in becoming a patron, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. You can pledge, even if it's just a dollar or two, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate your support. I'll also say that if you haven't already, or even if you have, but it's been a while, consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show when they are looking for an anesthesia-related podcast. And of course, remember, as you listen to these episodes, you can leave comments at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. There's some great ones that have been left, people who really have helped enhance the learning of everyone by leaving their own knowledge or some additional evidence or even pointing things out that we may have gotten wrong. We really appreciate that. It's a great form of peer review, so please check out the show notes and feel free to leave comments if you have anything that you'd like to share. All right, let's jump in and talk about OSA in adults, obstructive sleep apnea. So, The reason this is such a big deal is that it's becoming very prevalent. The prevalence of moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea is somewhere between 10 and 17 or 18% in all comers, which is a pretty high percent, especially when you consider the comorbidities associated with it, which we'll talk about. It's probably significantly underreported. And in fact, in bariatric surgery, the rate is as high as 70%, obviously, because it's associated with the obesity. 
And so we really want to know if patients coming for surgery have OSA. Some, of course, will come to us with the diagnosis. Many will not. And so we'll talk about screening. Obviously, polysomnography is the gold standard for screening. And those are sleep studies where you actually go to a sleep lab and you are studied overnight with a bunch of monitors on you. And that's how you can get an official diagnosis of OSA. It's obviously time-consuming, and many patients will not have done it, even if they do have OSA. So we really are interested in screening patients. There's a variety of different scoring protocols, and they've been looked at. Some have been validated. There's a wide array of reported sensitivity and specificity. Really, the most popular, the most widely used, and probably the most well-validated is the stop-bang score. Now, before we get to that, and I'll tell you about that, let's just get a few definitions down. So when you do get a sleep study, what they're looking for as you sleep is to figure out an apnea-hypopnea index. And that AHI, apnea-hypopnea index, is what will be used to diagnose you with OSA and to grade the severity of your OSA. So Apnea is obviously apnea. What is hypopnea? So a respiratory flow drop of greater than or equal to 30% or a saturation drop greater than or equal to 4% compared to baseline for at least 10 seconds. That's what hypopnea is. That's a hypopnea episode, Any either one of those things. Apnea, of course, is a flow drop greater than or equal to 90% from baseline for at least 10 seconds. So when you count up the episodes of apnea and the episodes of hypopnea, and you do the number of those per hour, that's your apnea-hypopnea index or your AHI. If you have less than five, that's normal. And that's interesting, right? Because it means that some amount of these actually can be normal. If you just have that happen a couple times per hour, that's still classified as normal. Anywhere from five to 14 is mild OSA, 15 to 29 is moderate, and 30 or more is severe. So why do we care? Because OSA has a lot of associations with difficult airway, difficult and worse outcomes perioperatively, and we'll talk more about that. All right, let's go back now and talk about the STOP-BANG score. It's an acronym, and the first S, the S stands for snore loudly. Do you snore loudly? The T is for tired. Do you feel tired during the day? The O is for observed. Have you been observed? And of course, this only works if someone's observing you or sleeping with you, but have you been observed either stopping breathing or having choking or gasping during sleep? The P is for pressure. Do you have high blood pressure? Have you been diagnosed or treated for high blood pressure? The B from bang is BMI, a BMI greater than 35. The A is age greater than 50. The N is neck circumference, greater than 43 centimeters in men or 41 centimeters in women. And the G is gender being male. So for every one of those, if you say yes, you get a point. Now, I will say that the different cutoffs have been changed a little bit or tried different ways to try to maximize specificity and sensitivity. The neck circumference, your institution may be slightly different or it may be in inches instead of centimeters, but whatever your institution does is what you should stick with. When this screening tool was first published, and that was by Chung and colleagues back in 2016, in CHEST, the cutoff was 3 to detect mild OSA. And that had a sensitivity of 83.6%, but a specificity of only 56.4%. So then, since then, most places now use a cutoff of 4 to kind of balance out and have a decent amount of both sensitivity and specificity, though the specificity is still not great. 
to address that, there have been a variety of studies looking at kind of trying to break down the stopping into component parts, maybe put more emphasis on some parts than others. Some people have looked at adding bicarb. So if you have a bicarb more than or greater than or equal to 28 uh, on your chem panel, that that is further predictive. But none of these uh, modifications have been well validated yet. As I said, there are other scoring protocols other than stopping. Some look at different characteristics. Some look at morphologic characteristics, things that can be measured like thyromental distance and Malampati score. But again, none of them have been studied as thoroughly as the stop-bang score. There are a variety of comorbidities associated with OSA. So obesity, hypertension, a history of stroke, a history of MI, diabetes, congenital conditions like Down syndrome, neuromuscular diseases, and it is associated with difficult airway management. Ideally, obviously, we'd like to identify people beforehand in a clinic so that they can be diagnosed and start treatment, treatment being with CPAP, and CPAP makes quite a difference. We'll talk more about that later. But if you get a patient who you suspect has OSA and they haven't been diagnosed, you can look at their records, you can ask questions like on the stop bang score to try to identify if these things are happening, uh, and uh, you can ask about other things like having morning headaches, though not part of the stop bang score that can be associated with OSA. And you can do, of course, a physical exam, looking at their airway, their neck circumference, their tonsil size, their tongue size. If you have high suspicion for OSA and you identify it before the date of surgery, then you should have a discussion with the surgeon to try to figure out what's the safest way to proceed. Should they get a sleep study first to get a firm diagnosis to be started on CPAP? Or do you want to make a plan for the surgery that will treat them as if they have OSA to keep them safe? And those will be things we'll talk more about. For example, really trying to reduce the use of perioperative and especially postoperative opioids. The other question that comes up is inpatient versus outpatient management, assuming it's a surgery that doesn't have to be done as an inpatient. And there's no guideline that says that everyone with any suspicion for OSA needs to be done as an inpatient. It's going to be a balance. It's going to depend on the severity of the OSA. It's going to depend on the intensity of the surgery. It's going to depend on how much post-op opiate you think will be needed. And so a decision will have to be made between the anesthesiologist and the surgeon as to what's the safest way to manage these patients, or specifically any specific patient. All right, so you're evaluating someone in hopefully a preoperative clinic, either days or weeks before surgery. You're going to do a stop-bang. And again, other things you can look for in addition to the stop-bang score are um, whether a patient has craniofacial abnormalities, whether they have an anatomical nasal obstruction. You can look at their tonsils. If the tonsils are nearly touching or actually touching in the midline, that's a risk factor. And again, we looked separately at PEDS, but in pediatrics, intermittent vocalization at night, if the parents report restless sleep, night terrors, sleeping in unusual positions, new onset of enuresis, those can be risk factors in, in kids. Obviously, daytime somnolence is part of the stop-bang score. Also, falling asleep when not stimulated, uh, in, for example, when sitting in a car at a red light. For pediatrics, being sleepy, easily distractible, overly aggressive, irritable, trouble, having trouble concentrating, or being difficult to arouse at a normal time are also risk factors, so you want to look for that. And again, you want to think about the type of surgery. If it's major surgery, if it's airway surgery, if you're definitely using general anesthesia, those are all higher risks. So when you get to the preoperative area, 
let's say either you didn't, they didn't go to a preoperative clinic well in advance or they did and they didn't screen positive or whatever may have happened, but now you're seeing them in the pre-op area the day of surgery. So if they didn't have a preoperative screen, you obviously are going to want to do one. Many places like our institution have a protocol where everyone gets the stop-bang score. And we do know that there are better outcomes if patients have are on CPAP if they bring their home CPAP with them. And it's quite impressive having that CPAP, being able to do CPAP. And the reason the home CPAP matters is that patients are more compliant. They're more likely to use CPAP if it's their own home CPAP machine. And there's quite a lot of benefits, fewer cardiac events, fewer admissions to the ICU. So it's really beneficial to have these patients on CPAP postoperatively. So you want to make sure you prepare by having that ready. And then also in the preoperative area, make sure you're thinking about it and thinking about how you're going to manage the airway, knowing that these patients are at high risk of a difficult airway. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Intraoperatively, whenever you can, you want to try to avoid opiates. So multimodal analgesia. If you can do a regional block, that's great. If not, you want to think about things like IV lidocaine, IV ketamine, magnesium. What else can you do to try to avoid using a ton of opiates, Tylenol, NSAIDs, if it's okay with the surgeon. So you really want to think about multimodal in these patients, preoperative gabapentin, whatever you can do to try to reduce the amount of opiate that you're going to give them. If it's not a surgery for which you're going to intubate the patient, then you want to be very careful with heavy sedation. You want to think about if a patient uses CPAP at home or if they use a mandibular advancement device, kind of like a bite block that helps advance their lower jaw. If they use those at home, have them use it intraoperatively if they're not fully asleep and intubated. Those can really help. If you do have to use deep sedation, it's better to secure the airway than not to do it because, of course, they're going to be at high risk for obstructing. You want to make sure if you use neuromuscular blockade that they're going to be fully reversed. You want to make sure that they're extubated when they're fully awake, ideally. These are not patients that you want to extubate deep for the most part. When you are waking them up, you want to have them in a lateral or semi-upright position, ideally. You don't really want them lying totally supine. That's going to increase their risk of obstructing. Remember that they're at higher risk for difficult airways, and that includes being a difficult mask and a difficult intubation. So you want to be prepared for that. However, you do prepare. You may want to have a GlideScope or a CMAC in the room. You may want to go straight to those things. Certainly make sure you have a backup plan if they are difficult to mask or to intubate. Remember, they're at higher risk for cardiovascular comorbidities and for cardiac complications. So being very careful with blood pressure, monitoring their heart very closely. Also, they're at higher risk for postoperative respiratory complications. So doing everything you can to optimize that. If you can do the surgery with them in a semi-upright position or on a ramp, that can be helpful. In fact, the ramp does several things. It helps prevent pharyngeal closure. It increases their total lung volume. It gives you better visualization during intubation. If you're going to intubate them in a ramp position, that's ideal. And then postoperatively, remember they have major risk factors for postoperative respiratory depression. And on top of their OSA, they, the more severe it is, the higher the risk of post-op respiratory depression. And then on top of that, opiates, sedatives, invasiveness of the procedure, the potential for uh, apnea also goes up, believe it or not, on post-op day three or four. So what happens there is that during REM sleep, there's a higher risk for obstruction. 
And so when patients initially come out of the operating room, they're on a lot of opiates, they actually have REM sleep depression, partly from the opiates, partly from the stress of surgery. And so they then on day three or four have REM rebound where they'll spend a huge amount of time in REM sleep overnight. And during that time, they're at increased risk for obstruction. So you want to keep that in mind as well. Remember, if they have their home CPAP, bringing it with them is great. If they don't, post-op CPAP of any kind is very helpful. And why is that? Because CPAP splints open the airway. It also does other things, interestingly. It can decrease edema and inflammation in the airway. And patients who are on CPAP actually not only breathe better, but they have decreased perioperative cardiac morbidity. In fact, it may even bring them back to baseline. In other words, they may get all the way back to having the same cardiac morbidity as patients without OSA if they use their CPAP perioperatively. And we already talked about how you want to have them use their home device. If possible, postoperatively, have these patients sleep either prone or lateral or sitting. We know that in non-surgical patients, OSA patients do better. So they probably do better also post-surgically in those positions, if possible. It's a little unclear. The literature isn't definitive about whether patients do better with continuous pulse oximetry and exactly how long they should be on it postoperatively, but it's pretty clear that these patients are at high risk for postoperative respiratory complications, and so keeping them on, at least considering keeping them on some sort of monitoring, especially if they have severe OSA, is probably a good idea. Again, different institutions are going to have different protocols for that, so check out your own institution's protocol. The ASA expert opinion on this is that they should stay on oxygen until they can maintain their baseline saturations on room air, and indeed, that is what we do. Anyone who screens positive for OSA here will have to do room air trials after surgery in the PACU. If they can maintain their saturation on room air, especially when they're not stimulated or even asleep, then they are fine to go to a non-monitored setting. But if they cannot maintain their saturation on room air, then they will have to be in a monitored setting overnight that first night. A key thing that we talked about in the pediatric OSA episode, but I'll just remind you, is that children having tonsillectomy, repeated hypoxemia that they experience leading up to that may sensitize them to opiates so that they have a much higher risk of respiratory depression when they do get opiates. In fact, they may require only half the dose of opiates compared to a kid who has not had those repeated bouts of hypoxemia. Not sure if that's true in adults or not, but it's good to keep in mind. And again, we want to limit opiates as much as we can. If there's a way to do regional, as I said, that's really ideal. All right. And as I said, you want to be keeping a close eye on these patients in terms of possible cardiac events, respiratory failure post-op. They're at high risk for transfer to the ICU if they go to the floor. So you want to keep in mind that you want to be very careful when you're deciding where to send these patients. And then remember that all these studies that have shown all these increased risks, also you have to acknowledge that these patients have a bunch of comorbidities at baseline. So they don't have to be obese, but they tend to be very obese. They tend to be at higher risk for having diabetes, hypertension, previous cardiac comorbidities, strokes, et cetera. So these patients have other reasons to potentially need some more intense postoperative care. So you want to look at the whole picture, put it together. It should be a joint multidisciplinary decision with the surgeons and anesthesiologists and make a decision as to what's the safest way to handle these patients. All right. So to summarize, 
OSA, very prevalent, probably getting more so, lots of comorbidities, lots of risks associated with it when you are going in for surgery. Patients should be screened, probably with the stopping screen. They'll keep your eye out as other screening tools are developed and attempted to be validated. The gold standard is polysonography, looking at the apnea hypopnea index. Make sure that you are screening your patients preoperatively. Make sure you have an institutional protocol for how to deal with patients who screen positive. Intraoperatively, do multimodal analgesia. Do everything you can to avoid opiates. Make sure that if the patients need deep sedation, they have a secure airway. Make sure they're fully reversed from any neuromuscular blockade. Postoperatively, really try to limit opiates. Make sure that if they're severe or have other comorbidities, you consider prolonged monitoring, maybe doing room air trials. Make sure they use their CPAP perioperatively if at all possible. And you, the other thing to consider that I didn't mention is considering really short-acting opioids if you have to use them. So remifentanil, for example, intraoperatively is going to give you a better post-op profile since it'll go away. Now, of course, if they're going to have pain post-operatively, you have to treat it with something. But again, trying to use other things is ideal. All right, we're going to wrap it up there. Please go to ACRAC.com and let me know what else you're doing for these patients. Is there anything I left out, anything you think people should know when treating patients with OSA perioperatively? All right. I already said my thank yous and shout outs up front, so I will not belabor it by going back into them here, but I look forward to your comments. Thank you for listening. That's it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.